Luke chapter 24. We come to the closing chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And it's about the resurrection. The resurrection is the heart of the Gospel, as you know. It's the cornerstone, the central message. We don't teach philosophy. We don't teach psychology. We don't teach anthropology. We teach Jesus Christ, the Scriptures. The only way to God and the only atonement that is given to us. And um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those that come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And that faith must always point you back to the revelation of God. What God has said about Himself, about you, about me, about sin, about salvation, about atonement, about heaven, about hell. All of that. That I align myself with His Word. And that I am taught about the things of the Spirit, about the things of God, about the things of man, about the things of sin and everything. And that's really the basis of our, our knowledge. It isn't based on human reasoning, yet it's not based on reason alone, but it's a reasonable uh, faith because it has a basis by which God honors His Word because He has made a real payment for the sins of the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here in uh, chapter 24, 1 through 12, we have the visitation to the tomb. In verse 1 through 3, the women were the first to the tomb. It is interesting, they were the last at the cross also. So they, they, they get an A plus on both ends. Um, verse 1 says, now in, in the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they... Uh, and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now, remember the previous chapter, this is where they were left off. They put Jesus Christ it's before sundown. Uh, the Sabbath is coming. They, they couldn't do any work. They went home to prepare these things. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, we're told that um, this is Sunday, the first day of the week, okay? This is when Jesus rose from the dead. In um, the other gospel, if you compare uh, Matthew, Mark, and even John, it was early in the morning. It was uh, um, just uh, prior to becoming light. It was still dark. Uh, they're all talking about the same time, um, early in the morning. And uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, uh, Mary, um, the mother of James and Solomon, they were all there. And they went and they were going to um, prepare the body of Jesus. But to their surprise, even as they were going, they were talking with them among themselves, who's going to move that stone? And uh, some of you have been to Israel with us, and when we go to the tomb there, there right uh, uh, where you have Golgotha Calvary, to the left, looking face, and to the left is the tomb, Gordon's Calvary. And, um, and a big stone is rolled up in the mouth of it. And uh, so they're concerned about that huge stone. But by the time they got there, it was already rolled away because uh, the Lord sent an angel after an earthquake in uh, Matthew 28, 2, and um, he removed the stone and he sat on there. And as they come to the tomb, um, they went in in verse 3 and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he told them he was going to rise from the dead. Um, it seems that the only ones that really were believing that it might happen were the Pharisees who sought some kind of a, a Roman seal on the tomb and some guards. And as uh, the case was... Um, um, they were put to death and they started spreading the rumor that um, that the disciples had stolen away the body. Those kind of stories are still around today. The Passover plot and all the blasphemous things that, that denied the resurrection. There is more proof about the resurrection in the New Testament um, than anything else in history. 
it's impossible to come to any other conclusion. Here in verse 4 to 7, the women encountered the angels at the tomb. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Now, again, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, also tells about these angels. One of them focused on just one, the more prominent one, the other one on two. No contradiction. You put them all together, all four of them side by side, and they complement each other. And then in verse 5, as they were afraid and they bowed their faces to the earth... They said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And again, every time we see um, individuals encountering angels or even the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, people revere them. People just are in awe of them. They they prostrate themselves. And here it's no different. And um, here again, um, they've got garments that are shining, brilliance. They're they're angelic beings, spirits, ministering angels. Uh, spirits of salvation for those who are heirs of salvation, Hebrews tells us. And um, all the angels are always, as we've stated, are, are manifested in a f- masculine gender. Uh, there's never a, a female angel that uh, is uh, reported in Scripture. And, uh, and so here they are. Um, they're met by these angels uh, to clear up what's going on. Even though Jesus had told them, they, they still... Um, they're coming with all their love, all their, uh, their affection for Jesus. Um, but they were expecting a body. And Jesus told them, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and the question, why do you seek the living among the dead, is just a perfect question. Um, you, as I said this morning, you, you wouldn't go looking for a date at a, at a funeral parlor. Um, you just wouldn't go there. And so here in verse... Um, Six, he says, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. So as we look at the ministry of Jesus and you remember that Jesus constantly told him that he was uh, going to be betrayed by the hands of, of the religious rulers into the hands of the Gentiles. And he would suffer many things at their, at their hand and that he would be crucified and he would be risen from the dead. Uh, Luke 9, 22, Matthew 26, 20, 32, and many other passages over and over and over again. From the confession of Caesarea Philippi, um, Jesus declared his death and his resurrection altogether. The cross and the resurrection were always mentioned together. But because of the mindset of the Jews, again, they didn't hear it. It didn't, uh, it didn't settle down in their hearts. They were looking for that kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. And um, he says in verse 7, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful man and be crucified. And the third day, rise again. Again, these are prophecies that he'll deal once again before he leaves them and that they have to be fulfilled. Just as today, there's a lot of prophecies that still have to be fulfilled for the coming of the Lord for his church. We look at the world and we see that it's getting uh, uh, really hectic and uh, very dangerous all the way around. Not only in our own nation, but with Iran, with Israel, with Russia. And it seems that everything's coming to a head. And um, as we look to the scriptures, we really don't see... Anything else that needs to be fulfilled before the Lord Jesus Christ would come back for his church. The only thing that I see next take place is that Russia would attack Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And the minute that Russia attacks Israel, then the Lord will remove his church. 
God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5.9, Romans 5.9. He has uh, said he's going to keep us from the hour in Revelation 3.10 that will come upon the whole world. We are heavenly citizens, not earth dwellers. That will come upon all earth dwellers. And we are the bride of Christ. And he will remove his bride. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. We will be caught up, harpazled with them, the dead bodies. And they will meet those that come back to meet us in the clouds. And we'll be with the Lord for seven years. We'll go before the beam of seat of Christ. We will have the marriage supper. We will come back for our honeymoon after the battle of Armageddon. And we'll spend a thousand years with Jesus. <laughs> okay? So I don't expect to be in the tribulation, a great tribulation. And I say this because there are a lot of Christians and a lot of ministries who are going that direction now. And I would caution you. We are the bride of Christ. God has not appointed us to wrath. People say, well, look at all that's going on. Listen, listen, listen. Put your mind back in the days of Hitler. World War II. You're in Germany. You're a Christian. They're giving Jews tattoos on the arms. Would you believe it's tribulation? Absolutely. Was it? No. The time when tribulation and great tribulation come, it's going to be so horrible that nothing that we've ever known will compare to it. Nothing like it. So it doesn't mean that we can't suffer. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't go through difficult things. But whatever we go through, it is not tribulation and great tribulation. It's a tribulation of the world because you're a Christian and because the events that are going on. Very, very, very clear. And so um, there's kind of a, 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 a turning in, in the Christian community. And we're being interested more in making community and, 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 and fellowship and making people comfortable and not offending them rather than proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be ready looking up because our redemption draws near when we first believed. And that we would be occupying till Jesus comes. Knowing the scriptures, being able to give people hope, giving them answers, and not simply living for ourselves. In verse 8, he says, and they remembered his words. So from 8 down to 12, the women returned to tell the apostles now. In verse 9, it says, and they returned from the tomb, and they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, the eleven is just a, a, a category that is named. Eleven, Judas minus one. They used to be called the twelve because we know that Thomas was not here. John tells us that. And so, um, uh, but they go back and tell them. And in verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, jo Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them and told them these things to the apostles. And so, they, they received the witness of the um of the angels, they, they go back and they're just excited about sharing with the apostles. And in verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales. They did not believe them. The word means nonsense. The word is a medical term. Remember, Luke is a physician to describe the babbling of a fevered, insane man. <laughs> It seems like the apostles were the last to believe. They were the first to run and the last to believe. But Peter, verse 12 tells us, arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. And he departed, marveled to himself at what 
had happened. Good old Peter. Walks in, scratches his head. John 20, verse 3 through 8, tells us that John and Peter both ran. John beat him. Either he was younger or Peter was a lot slower. One of the two. But John just stooped down and looked in. But Peter just ran in there. And he looked and he marveled. Scratched his head. Trying to figure it out. John entered in after him. Saw. And it says he believed. John was the only one at the cross. John, behold your mother. To his mother, behold your son. And John took her in. And 13 down to 35, we have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We went through it in depth this morning. We're not going to belabor it the same way. I would encourage you to get that if you weren't here, though. Uh, it's a great, a great uh, passage of Scripture. It is unique to Luke. Uh, Matthew doesn't record it. Mark doesn't record it. John doesn't record it. Though Mark does give us a one little commentary that it was, in fact, a, a true account in, uh, in, in chapter 16. And so 13 to 16, you have the two disciples that are joined by Jesus here. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day, meaning Sunday, to a village called Emmaus which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Again, the Sabbath has passed. They were only able to travel five-sixths of a mile, so they have to wait till the next day. They can get home. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Of course, these things are the whole event about the trial, the crucifixion, and, and the entombment of Jesus. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned with that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And here again... Um, they reasoned, they were investigating, examining, trying to figure these things out. Um, sometimes we are sure of what God's going to be doing, so we think, and we, it seems like things are opening up, this door is opening up, and this is falling in line, and all of a sudden, when we think it's going to happen, it doesn't happen. And we say, well, what happened here, Lord? And we're perplexed, and we go, Lord, I, I just thought that and, and God has other things in mind sometimes. Some of the greatest answers to prayer is no. You and I should be as excited about a no from God as a yes. A no from God is for my good. A yes from God is for my good. I must understand that. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's best for my life. At this time, as they're trying to decipher these things, Jesus just comes alongside in verse 15 and just continues to walk with them. Now, this was customary for those days, especially the feast days. And uh, they just traveled in groups, safety, company. And in verse 16, it says, But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. So they're perplexed about Jesus. Jesus is next to them. They're completely ignorant. God has blinded their eyes. This is a divine doing even as it will be when he opens their eyes later on in verse 31. And in 17, he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? The Lord is always interested in what's going on in my mind and my heart. He's concerned what bothers me, what, what burdens me. And if I will take the time to allow him to come alongside and to converse with me, and I will 
fellowship with him, then, then he will deal with me. He will comfort me. He will strengthen me. He will give me the peace that surpasses all understanding. But if all I do is turn these things over in my mind and my mind and my mind, but I don't go to the Lord, all I get is anxiety and I, I lose all the peace that passes all understanding. And now I'm no longer relying on the Lord, but I'm relying on my own ability to figure these things out. Nothing wrong with using our brains. Just don't depend upon it. Okay? God gave you to use it, but you use it subject to the Word, subject to His direction. And that's very important. Uh, they were just um, all bummed out here um, in, in verse 17. Um, and, um, and 18 says, and, one, um, and the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things that happened there in these days? Uh, you, you must be a, a foreign Jew, one that's from another country and you've just kind of made your pilgrimage for the first time and maybe you spend it sleeping or something because everybody has heard and what's going on here. Um, again, when Jesus is, is prodding these guys, it's not to get information. He's leading them to a, a certain point where he will deal with their heart and it becomes more intimate as he moves along with them. And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and were before God and all the people. So they acknowledged that Jesus was the anointed of God, God who became man. God was with him, deeds, miracles, everything. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and be crucified, to crucify him. So here they're trying to put it together. And at the same time, they know exactly who's at fault. Who's the guilty party? It was the Jewish nation, the leaders. Because Pilate didn't want to condemn Jesus. He did everything in his power to be loose of him, but he had to make a choice and he chose to protect himself, as we saw. But yet the greater guilt and judgment would be upon the religious rulers. And they would pay dearly. In 70 A.D., as the Roman legion would come and just devastate Jerusalem. In verse 21, he says, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. So, they're very aware that it's the third day. They're, they were hoping that um, it was going to happen, but it hasn't happened. So... Um, they're pretty discouraged at this point. The word redeem again has to do with um, being loose by the payment of ransom and having the receipt. When Jesus went to the cross, he was the payment for your sin and mine. The wrath of God was poured out upon him as the actual execution for sin, death, and Jesus died. And he rose, raised him from the dead as the receipt that that payment was accepted. At this point, they have no evidence of his resurrection. He's appeared to Peter. They're walking along. They don't know about this. The Lord is working, but not everybody has all the facts. To them, they think it's all over because they haven't gotten the news. They haven't seen Jesus. And yet Jesus is right beside them here. And he's dealing with their hearts. 
And they were very aware of the third day. And besides all this, if it's bad enough, it's the third day. And so in 22, he says, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Throughout the confusion now, angels are coming into the picture. And the message to the women is, that was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and Solomon also, and that um, he was not there. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? As he said earlier in verse 4. But as they went and told, again, the response of the apostles was that they were crazy. Such couldn't be the case. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb. There's Peter and John again. Just as the women had said, but they, him, they did not find. Again, they go because they've heard the story, but they should have never gone. They didn't have to go to see. Jesus said, I'll see you in Galilee. What are you doing at the tomb? <laughs> it may show that you love them. It may show that you are grieving for him, but it shows that you have no faith in what he said. They acted contrary to faith. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And so here, Jesus rebukes them. O foolish Sluggish of heart. Not believing what the prophets said. All they had was the Old Testament, by the way, you know. They, don't, they didn't have a New Testament at this point. So, Jesus was preaching out of the Old Testament. Paul the Apostle preached out of the Old Testament. If you only had the Old Testament, can you preach Jesus out of it? You should know the Old Testament. That's all they had. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Did I not tell you about that? The suffering, humiliation comes first, not the glorification. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As I said this morning, too bad we don't have this record. <laughs> It'd be amazing to see how much we miss. About Jesus in the, in the scriptures. <laughs> and then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone further. So in other words, he pretended like he was going to keep traveling. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in and stayed with them. Their, 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 their motive here is concern for them. Um. It was danger to travel alone. And so they asked him to abide with him. And um, they constrain him. It has the idea of compelling, forcing him. And so he went in and supped with them. And of course, this was a house. This wasn't just out in the bush, as we'll see. Verse 30 says, um, down to 31, 
um, as they're together, that when now it came to pass, as he sat at the table, that means to recline, the Jewish way of eating uh, on pillows and leaning back and a low table to the floor, um, that he took bread and blessed and broke and gave it to them. So he's the, uh, the invitee, he's the guest, but he acts as the host. See, so as I said this morning, whenever you invite Jesus into your life, then he is the, the host. He runs your life. You must get out of the driver's seat. You must sit in the back. He's in control. You can't invite Jesus into your life and ask him to save you and still think that you are the one who's going to run your life. That you are the one that makes the calls. It's inconsistent. Yes, you will use common sense. You will use the wisdom God gives you and you will make those decisions. But it's always based on what the word of God directs you. What it says. So you align yourself with the word of God, which is the will of God. And that's why it's so important to study the word and to know it. And notice this is well, um, they're breaking bread. Um, as he gave it to them. In verse 31, their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. They saw him as who he was, the risen Christ. All this perplexity, all this confusion, all this thing that's going on all along through this whole seven mile walk. And all of a sudden, everything is answered or it doesn't matter. Sometimes people say, you know, when I, I've got some things when I get up to heaven and ask the Lord. Listen, when you're there, it's not going to matter. <laughs> it, it, it just, every, you're going to be just like Jesus Christ. <laughs> All those questions are only here when we're so limited, we're so finite. We have such weaknesses and limitations. And we still are bound by our sin nature and the infirmities of our flesh and everything else. Um, but they, they won't be there. In verse uh, 32, And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? The burn is a fire, a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that he's alive, knowing that he has forgiven you of your sin, knowing that he is going to be with you until the end, knowing that he will give you wisdom if you spend time with him, knowing that you will become more like him if you're willing to become less like you, knowing that he's sufficient for anything and everything that comes into your life, knowing that he'll never allow you to be tested more than you're able, but with every way show you the way of escape in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, knowing that you're going to have to go through fiery trials because they're going to refine you. We shouldn't think it's strange or weird. In the world you should have tribulations, be of good cheer, but I have overcome the world, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Real simple. In 33 to 35, Jesus, having made himself known to the two, they had to tell others. So they arose in that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they um, found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now they've already told by the women. They already said, you guys are crazy. And they told them the things that had happened on the road and how he, had, uh, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're ready to say, you guys are crazy. And then in verse 36, now as 
they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. <laughs> Amazing. They were familiar with those words. The words of Jesus. The door was shut. John tells us, John 19, John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. And Jesus appears right in the midst of them. Thomas is not present. John tells us in chapter 20, 24 to 29, that Jesus came afterward and revealed himself to Thomas and showed him his hands and his side. My Lord and my God, he says. He believed. He appears a third time to them up in Galilee, John 21, 14 tells us. And there, as you know, he, um, he makes them a dinner and speaks to them. So here, he's standing in the midst in 37, he says, But they were terrified and frightened, and suppose they had seen a spirit. Now you remember when they were up in the Sea of Galilee, and he was walking on the water, they also thought that they were seeing a spirit, and they cried out with fear. Matthew fourteen twenty six. It seems like they haven't advanced very far in three and a half years, huh? They're still failing the same test. 38 to 43, the proof Jesus gives them to ensure them that he's not a spirit is given to us. He says, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubts arise in your heart? All things are open and naked with him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.12 says, his word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the sun, the soul, and the spirit. He knows our very thought. The psalmist says that he knows them from their origin. I don't know them until they get here. He knows the end from the beginning. No one needed to tell Jesus anything because he knew what was in man, John tells us in, in the opening of his gospel. He revealed the heart of Simon, the Pharisee. He revealed the heart of the Samaritan woman and so many. And they just were amazed. How did he do that? Well, he tell, kept telling them that he was Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world. But they did not believe. Here the disciples and apostles, they're in trouble. They're frightened. Supposing he's a spirit. So he said to them, why are you troubled? And why does doubt arise in your hearts? Always the heart, as we said this morning. Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now, this is interesting because this is the, um, the new model we're going to get. And uh, again, Jesus suddenly appears. It seems to be that it's of a physical origin that you can touch. Um, but it has great capacities to transport itself. Um, it never tells us that he can go through walls. But we just assume that if he entered in with the door shut that he did that. But whether he came through the roof or whatever, it doesn't matter. The thing is it has some nifty little um, components here. And notice he says... Flesh and bones. 
I thought that was interesting. He didn't, he didn't say flesh and blood. <laughs> Are we going to need blood in the new body? The life of the flesh is in the blood. Our new life is in Jesus Christ. He's the life source. Flesh and bones that you see. And when he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The marks of his crucifixion. It is possible that Jesus will still bear those marks when we see him. Isaiah says there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. When they brought Jesus forth after the scourging, Isaiah says he was not recognized as a man. He was so distorted and contorted. But while he still did not, while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, have you any food here? So he can see they're, you know, kind of freaked out. They just, they, they don't want to commit themselves. They're, they're kind of like a, like a nervous smile. <laughs> you know, it's not complete. You just. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate in their presence. So here it is. Um, he takes food and he eats. Now, are we going to need food in heaven? No. The kingdom is God. It's not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. But it does have the capacities to eat. Jesus ate with the apostles here. Um, it's quite interesting. They were probably watching him so close. And yet, John tells us in John 20, verse 13, that when they were in Galilee, Jesus prepared some fish and bread, and he ate with them there also. So it was not just one time. In verse 43, he took and ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The law, the prophets, major, minor prophets, the Psalms, the three divisions that the Jews look at the scripture. They're the same number of books that we have in the Old Testament. They just categorize them differently. This was the Jewish division. And again, here Jesus makes it very, very clear and emphatic that everything was prophesied about. Everything had to be fulfilled. As he was on the cross, there were so many prophecies being fulfilled. Even in his death, he was fulfilling prophecy. Even as he descended to the lowest parts of hell, he was fulfilling prophecy. Now, if he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming, is there any doubt in your mind and heart that he will fulfill the rest of them? Of course not. It's God's inspired word. It will be fulfilled. And so, he opened up their understanding, verse 45, that they might comprehend the scriptures. All along, even though they spent three and a half years with Jesus, what an incredible experience. But if 
you can't connect the dots, it doesn't matter. They were expecting a kingdom to be established, to reign. Jesus had the church age in mind. They were expecting to reign with Jesus when they got to Jerusalem. Jesus had the Holy Spirit in mind who would be the representative of Jesus Christ. He would be the one to enable them, as we're going to see, to do what he calls them to do. He opened their understanding they might comprehend. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, on down to 16, that I has not seen, neither has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And he goes on to share how the natural man does not understand or receive the things of God, but we who are spiritual understand all things. And we, we verse, uh, Scripture compares Scripture and interpret Scripture and we're to put on the mind of Christ. We have it. And so... It is by God's grace that we're able to understand. It is by God's great illumination of the Holy Spirit that the word makes sense, that it convicts us, that it it becomes alive in our heart. Did not our heart burn within us as he spoke to us? When you get off and you read and you study, when you're sitting there and you're listening and you're open for God to minister to you, when you're driving down the road and you're praying to the Lord, things happen at work or wherever you may be and you lift your heart to the Lord and the Lord comforts you, He guides you, or He may rebuke you. And He directs and guides you step by step as you look to Him. The fulfillment of Scripture, opening up your mind, your heart to Him. In verse 46 to 49, the prophecies had to be fulfilled then. Then he said to them, This, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. So once again, there was no way that it was not going to happen. There are many different things that you can make decisions on and I can make decisions on in disobedience to the Lord or in rebellion against the Lord. And I can affect my life with consequences that would take away from what God really wants to do in my life. But none of those things will affect the ultimate purpose of God for the world and his plan for the world. I can affect my own life and I will affect the life of others. But the overall plan of God prophetically, the first coming, the second coming, the coming of the Antichrist and the tribulation, none of that will be affected. Are we clear on that? Okay? And here again, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So here, he, he's about to leave. He, he opens up their understanding. He, he, he gives them their commission here in verse 47. The Great Commission. There are five of them. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Mark 16, 15. John 20, 22. In 23, Acts 1.8 and the one right here that we're going to see as we get to the end. In John 20, 22 and 23, he says, Whoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. Loose or binding, the old King James. The Catholic Church uses that to qualify the priest who can forgive your sins. 
The context is that you as a Christian have all the authority and power to preach the gospel that if they believe that Jesus is the Son of God who became man, died for their sins and rose from the dead, that then you can tell them with repentance their sins will be forgiven. And if they do that, you have the authority to say your sins have been forgiven and they're buried in the deepest ocean. If they reject repentance, you have the same authority to say your sins are retained and God will judge you for your sins and you will be eternally separated from God. That's what that verse says. You and I have that authority because we have come to understand what it is to be forgiven. We have come to know the Lord and Savior who died for our sins. And our passion and our desire is that many more come to Him as you and I have come to experience that forgiveness. And the new work that He's done in our life, given us living hope to burn in our heart as we spend time with Him, as we talk with Him, as we break bread with Him, and even with each other. So the preaching in His name to all nations, and it began in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. You should be witnesses to, for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He's going to deal a little bit more with that before we get done here. And in verse 40, he says, And you are my witnesses of these things. So they were with him for three and a half years. He had prepared them. He was counting on them. There was no, uh, no second team. <laughs> they were it. We get our word martyr from the word witnesses there. Those who are killed for their faith and die for their faith. And so here, behold, he says in verse 49, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The promise of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of weird teachings about the Holy Spirit. Um, being slain in the Spirit is a common practice by Benny Hinn and extreme Pentecostal uh, movements. Um, and yet there's not one case that we see that within the Scriptures. Um, do I believe that the Lord can knock you down? Sure. But He's not going to knock you down to crack your head. So if slain in the Spirit is true, why do you have to have catchers? Why does somebody have to catch you? God's going to slay you in the spirit to crack your skull? And what evidence do we have in Scripture of that? Not one. You can confess your experience as legitimate because you have experienced it. That doesn't make it true or valid biblically. That's existentialism. Existentialism says that you can experience only what you experience and nobody can experience your experience like you experience it. Therefore, your experience is unique and valid. It's absolute truth and no one can say it's not truth. And when Christians say that their experience is valid by their experience, they're teaching existentialism, not the Bible. They blame Peter and many of them in the day of Pentecost, that they were drunk. He said, no, 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 no. This is that which was spoken to the prophet Joel. And he points it back to Scripture. You and I, whatever we believe, whatever we practice, we must give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope, the light, with meekness and fear. First Peter 3.15. 
Here it says in the scripture, in this context, this is what we are to believe. This is what we can do. This is the way the gifts are supposed to be. We're to be able to point to people and to give them an answer for the hope and reason that lies in us. And not simply bully our way around because we have experienced something that is not biblical. Jesus spent much time sharing about the Holy Spirit, as you know, in John 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit is the representative of Jesus Christ. He's the silent witness of Him. He never speaks of Himself. He never says anything contrary to the Scripture. He always glorifies Jesus. So whenever people start glorifying the Holy Spirit more than Jesus, that's a blinking red light. The Holy Spirit never speaks of Himself. He's a parakaleo, the one to come alongside just like Jesus, his representative. And he only teaches us and brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has spoken to us. Very, very, very clear. And so the promise of the Father that would be endued with power from on high. Many people confuse being filled with the Spirit, with gifts of the Spirit. They are tied together, but they're not the same. Assemblies of God's four squares, and many Pentecostals teach that the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And they teach that you must speak in tongues. If you don't, some groups even doubt if you're saved. Not all of them. But the fact is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is said to be for empowerment, Acts 1.8. Terry in Jerusalem, you being due with power, dunamis from on high. To equip them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So Jesus defines for us what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, consequently, when we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit taking place through the book of Acts, often, gifts of the Holy Spirit are associated and connected with the baptism. The two most evident and most common is tongues and prophecy. Now, no one can say that it's one or the other because both appear. And because Jesus said that the baptism was empowerment, it therefore nullifies any teaching that any one gift is the baptism. What we can teach is that when we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit for empowerment, often gifts of the Holy Spirit are manifested. And the two most evident is tongues and prophecy. Speaking in tongues is a mystery. Paul the Apostle says in Corinthians that in chapter uh, 14 that no man who speaks in tongues knows what he's saying. He can't understand what he's saying. He speaks mysteries. So, you may hear a lot of different things that speaking in tongues is a human language that you've never studied and you just speak it. 
That's not tongues, according to Corinthians 14, verse 1 through 3. We do see it in Pentecost that Peter spoke in dialectus, human languages, but that wasn't tongues, that was a miracle. They understood their own dialect. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 3, that when a man or woman speaks in tongues, no one understands them, not even themselves. It's a heavenly language. Very, very, very clear. Okay? So we want to make sure we don't contradict what the Word of God says or go beyond what the Word of God says, but that we examine what the Word of God says. And tongues is the least of the gifts. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. The rhetorical question, is everyone teach? Does everyone have healing? Does everyone? No, no, no. And then he says, does everybody speak in tongues? You're going to say yes? No. Then how is it that people can teach from the pulpit and say that everyone must speak in tongues or can speak in tongues? It's absolutely unbiblical. And yet as he finishes chapter 14, he says, now don't forbid to speak in tongues. But he gives us its right place. When I speak in tongues, my understanding is unfruitful. Paul says, I can sing with, with, uh, with, with uh, his tongue. Or he could speak in tongues. And Paul could speak in Hebrew, Aramaic, and probably Greek. And then he could also speak in tongues. He could sing in all four. <laughs> he had the ability to speak and to be quiet. He had control of the gift. The gift didn't drag him around and make him roll around or the tongue out or anything else. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Anybody who tells you the gifts of the spirit come upon them and they can't help themselves, they're liars. They're carnal. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. God's not the author of confusion. We're going to be looking at the gifts in depth in the weeks to come on Sunday night. And we'll take three at a time and we'll move through them and see them through Scripture. And so here the promise of the Father, the empowerment, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, distinct from the gifts. Um, and in 50, down to 53, the ascension of Jesus is given and he led them out as far as Bethany. On the other side of the Mount of Olives. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So this is the last time they see Jesus. And, and he blesses them. Acts 1, 9 through 11 gives us the same thing. It gives us a little more detail as, as they're there. And, and as he's ascended up on high. As we'll see in verse 51. The angels say, why do you guys stand here gazing up to, to the clouds? The very same way Jesus left, he's going to come back. 51 says, now it came to pass while well, he blessed them. So in the event that he was blessing them. Praying for them. He was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So the ascension from the Mount of Olives. When Jesus returns, Zechariah 14 says, Jesus will step on the Mount of Olives. It will cleave in two. A water sword will come from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea to revive it. To the Mediterranean. And the Lord will change the entire topography there and set up his kingdom. Amazing. And they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, they no longer will see him. They will have to depend by faith, looking to him. But now they know that he's ever present with them. 
For 40 days, the book of Acts chapter 1 says that he spoke with them, taught them about things of the kingdom of God. He would appear, he would disappear. He would appear, disappear. They go up to the Mount of Olives, they're there, and they say, oh, he'll come back. And all of a sudden, no, he's not coming back. That's it, let's go. And they go back to the temple, continuing the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. So be it. Interesting that the Gospel of Luke began with the temple scene. It ends there. The coming of the Messiah. Now the leaving of the Messiah. They go back because that's where the people are going to be that need to be here salvation. This is where the Holy Spirit is going to come. Ten days from now, the day of Pentecost will come. They will be endued with power from on high. They will proclaim the gospel. Peter there, 3,000 will be added to the church. And God will begin to use them to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The Great Commission. Not the great suggestion. We used to be, um, England used to be one of the major missionary nations of the world. And, uh, and England became very proudful, arrogant about her own power and God humbled her. She used to boast that, um, the sun never set on her kingdom because it was colonies all around the world. And God took one at a time away from them. And all their subjects were given British citizenship. Now she's reduced to one little island and all her so-called servants with privilege of citizenship are now surrounding her. Majority of them are Muslims. When you pull back on God, when you turn your back on not only God, but England did terrible wrong to Israel in the British mandate. Every nation that has turned its back on Israel has suffered incredible judgment by God. Now last week, our president... Secretary of State Kerry, who was a traitor to the Vietnam War and is a traitor to our country also. This entire administration slammed Netanyahu that he went to Iraq with us. Every one of those hypocrites voted to go to Iraq. Kerry, Hillary, all of them. That's bad enough. But what's worse is we have officially turned our back on Israel. And Netanyahu is going to come in a week and a half. You better be praying. Because Israel is going to attack Iran. And he's coming to get support. Are you going to stand behind me? And that's going to be the crossing line for America. Very much so. And so may God have mercy on us. And may we have a fire in our heart to preach the gospel. Regardless of what happens. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word and how good you are, Lord. We just lift our hearts to you, Lord. We pray for our nation, our leaders. We pray they would humble themselves and turn to you, Lord. 
And so, Lord, we just cry out to you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Jesus loves you. He wants to do so many great things in your life. The first thing is he wants to give you a peace that you've never known. By being able to know for sure that everything you've ever done can be forgiven and cast away. And that you can enter into fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's called repentance as you acknowledge your sinfulness and that he died for your sins. If this is your desire, this is your prayer to him and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.